The purpose of my asking you to think about things in which you move where your head's facing the wrong way is that my teaching tonight from uh, the book of uh, 1 Samuel 17 is about the head and its relationship to the hands and is the head oriented in the right way? Is the head of someone or, a, or, a, or an entity aligned with God or is it pointing the wrong way? Is it aligned somewhere else? Have we got things backwards? Have we got our spiritual priorities wrong? So now I want you to go with me a little bit on this. And if you open up to 1 Samuel 17 uh, on your, your apps or your Bibles or whatever you have, I want to draw your attention to something that really struck me as I was preparing uh, for today. Uh, and it's to do with, the, it's to do with the, the imagery of the head and also the imagery of the hands uh, in this passage. What I want you to notice, and, and it's, it really jumps out at you when you start looking for it, is the use in this passage of two words, head and hands. And, and it's, quite, it's quite stark when you start to look at it. It's one of these passages that we know really, really well. But when you focus on it from a thematic point of view of, well, what's the head doing here? How is the, how is the writer in this chapter using the idea of a head? And how, 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 are they, how is he using the idea of hands? A theme or a picture starts to emerge. And what's quite interesting to me is that it's not just apparent here in this passage, but it has its roots a long way back in the scripture as we shall uncover and unpack. And then I think there are some things that we can learn from it. Okay, let me just take you through it. So, these are in your notes here. So, heads and hands in 1 Samuel 17. So, Goliath of Gath, now think about this, this is a bit more subtle. It's not an overtly head statement right from the off. But it says, whose height was six cubits. Now, what does that make him in terms of his head? It makes his head above everybody else's head. Now, it seems to me that there's no accident that this Philistine champion is hugely tall. It's as though the enemy is making a statement, I am bigger than you. My head is above yours. So right from the off, you have a spiritual battle in which one side is trying to say, well, I'm bigger and stronger than you. Because my head, the the control place of me, looks down on you. That's what we're starting with. Then it says, Goliath had a helmet of bronze on his head. Okay, well... Wow, okay, no great shake so far. That's just a technical detail, surely. Okay, well, fair enough. And then it says uh, in 1 Samuel 17, 7, um, his spear's head, and, and, the, and in, in the Hebrew, I understand that's what it's, the word is, it means a head, weighed 600 shekels of iron. Some of your translations might have the tip or something different. And then we move into something akin to the hand or the hand's imagery. And David points out something to do with the paw of the bear, the paw of the lion, and he likens those two adversaries to the hand of the Philistine that might be raised against him. And so in, his, in David's mind, it's, it's a set of hands that he's grappled with up to now, and it's now going to be a hand that he'll be, fight against, be fighting against in this kind of hand-to-hand combat that the Philistine is wanting to uh, bring to the Israelites. Then it's very interesting that Saul clothes David with his armour and he puts a helmet of bronze on David's head. 
And that's symbolic, as, as Pastor Mark touched on a couple of weeks ago, that's symbolic of, well, the headship of Saul is being kind of temporarily transferred onto David. But we see that really David wants to have his own, his, his own head about things. He doesn't really want someone else's leadership or mindset over him in that sense. So there's a kind of physical representation of a, a leadership reality going on there. That, that David's stepping into his own, his own role of somebody wanting to take charge of this situation in the way that he knows how for himself. Now we notice that it, that's the sixth point there, a staff and a sling are in David's hand. So he's armed himself with something slightly different to what Goliath has armed himself with. Very, very significantly then, uh, David defies uh, Goliath by saying this statement in 1 Samuel 17, 46, point number seven there. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will take out that thing that is the control point in this conflict and it will become subservient to the, actually, to the headship of the Lord because I am under the Lord. And that's what he says. And he goes on to confirm it by saying, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine where? On the forehead. He, he hits him on the forehead and the stone sinks into his forehead and he falls on his face to the ground. So I don't wait. This is really obvious stuff. And I know that probably from the days of nurse, you know, nursery school, primary school, Sunday school, you'll have seen this battle. And, have, and it's really kind of obvious symbolism. You've got this smaller person backed by God. You have a much bigger person who is kind of out for himself and worships other gods, which we will get onto in a bit. And God beats him and he falls to the ground. And there's a sense in which there's a spiritual battle going on here played out in a physical battle. It's very obvious symbolism. So we're not learning anything too much new here. Then it says there was no sword in the hand of David, emphasizing that David's approach is not going to be according to the opposition that he's facing. It's going to be a different approach. Very significantly again, then David runs out, stands over the Philistine, takes his sword, drew, draws, so takes the Philistine sword, draws it out of its sheath and killed him. And what does he do? He cuts off the Philistine's head. So not only does the Philistine get attacked in the head with a pebble, David then finishes him off by cutting his head off. That's what he does. And then we see the last two points there, 12 and 13. David takes the head of the Philistine and brings it to Jerusalem, puts his armor, uh, the Philistine's armor in his tent. And then the trophy is paraded when he gets, goes along with Abner, one of the uh, Israelite soldier commanders. Uh, and he goes and stands before Saul and he has the head of the Philistine where? In his hand. And when you read the passage with heads and hands in mind, it becomes really stark. You kind of can't almost avoid seeing it. And what I think the Lord's kind of talking to, or is kind of revealing to me, is that there is some stuff going on to do with heads and stuff going on to do with hands in this passage, which I think is there intentionally from the Holy Spirit to teach us about leadership and who's in charge. And hence the notes are called uh, David and Goliath, heads and hands. And it's about who's in control. Who's, who's got charge here? Who has the headship? Okay, so, significance. I've got a couple of points for you to write in your notes here. Uh, just come with me on this a minute. So the head, I would say, you would put something like this. The head represents 
Who's in charge? Who has control? Or literally, headship. It could be the head of an organisation, it could be the head of an army, it could be the head of a spiritual entity, it could be some sort of power, uh, it could be a reporting line in an organisation, it could be a military commander. So the head in this passage, I believe, is to do with control or who's in charge. And if you think about it, the head is the centre of our thought processes and our moral reflection and our conscience. So here's the thing. If the stuff that's going on in our head is wrong, then everything we try and say and do will have faults with it, or it will be wrong as well. It will follow that that doesn't quite work. So bear with me. This, you're looking at me like this is all dead obvious to you. That's fine. This will build. So, so go with me on the journey, okay? Okay? The hand... So in your notes there, the head represents put something like control or being in charge the centre of the place of moral reflection, uh, the centre of the conscience decision points that you might make in your day, okay? The hand, I think, represents, in this passage, represents the instrument or channel through which those spiritual or moral decisions get acted on. So in other words, where the head is making those decisions and deciding for good or bad or aligning itself around a certain polarity, it's the hands that then go and do the work. They're, they're representative of, okay, well, now I'm going to go and say some things, or now I'm going to go and do some things, and my hands are representative of that action that I'm now going to take. So you, do you get the relationship between the two? So it's the head that makes the decisions, it's the hands that carries out the actions. Question for you, and this is where it starts to get interesting, okay? You're all with me so far, I can see. <laughs> okay, this is where it gets deep, Right. Why do you think all the head references in the passage are linked to Goliath and nearly all the hand references are linked to David? Bit of a poser for you. Give me some suggestions. What do you think? Um, yeah? Yeah, uh, first thought on it would be it's the difference between being out for yourself or being under authority. You're on the right lines, keep going. So the idea of are we taking the lead from ourselves? And our own understanding of the world that we take from God. Okay, so how does that play itself out? Why would, why would Goliath be... You're absolutely right, and you're totally on the right track. Great. Why would that play itself out in the way that we see where David's got the hands and Goliath seems to have the head images? What's going on there? Carrying on with the head image, Goliath's a big head, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, totally. Yeah. Goli well, Goliath thinks he's the head of everything. So he's a massive big head, and he's not under any authority except his own. And he spent 40 days marching out and saying, hey, come on then. Effectively, totally right, Cathy. Yeah, what do you think? Um, well, um, just in line with what he said, I feel like um, at points in our lives, the um, doubt dwells in the head, really. Y yeah. And for you to make a headway, you have to replace it with faith. Very good, yeah. And, and in this context... Goliath was the was Goliath as it stands in that situation, and then he needed to be replaced with God's headship. If that makes sense. Yeah. So to defeat Goliath, he needed God's headship, God's leadership. Right. So uh, yeah. You you both what you and Kevin have said are very very similar. Yeah. I think what I'm trying to get to, this is what I think is going on here. I think that David saw himself as the Lord's hands. Yeah. That's what I think is happening here. 
So you're not wrong at all. Everything you've said is absolutely spot on. But what I think is going on is Goliath sees himself as totally in charge and on top of everything and the head of everything. David sees himself as, no, I'm under the lordship of the Lord God. And I serve in the armies of the living God for Israel. And I, I am his instrument. I'm not the head. God is the head. And so in your notes there, I would put something like, my suggestion is that David's head is the Lord. And that he saw himself as a hand for use as the Lord's instrument. Whereas Goliath's head is either that he's just a big head or it's just himself. Or it might be the Philistine God who was anybody? Dagon. Dagon. Yeah. Could be the Philistine God Dagon. Okay. So, so far, just to be, be, don't do that. It's coming in the notes. (laughs) So, so far. Head, the centre of control and decision-making. Hands, the outworking of the actions that come from the head. We see, we see David as the Lord's hands in the field and subject to the headship of the Lord. We see a, an enemy who is his own head or has an, another spiritual headship which is not of the Lord. With me so far? Yeah? Okay, let's move on to the next bit. This is, this is the bit where I just get mega excited about the word because... There is such a great thread that is going to really bless you. And I've called it tracking the Philistine god Dagon through the Bible. This is fascinating. Okay, Let's look at where Dagon appears and who he is and what happens. First mention of Dagon is in relation to Joshua. Joshua 15, 41 and 19, 27, 27 mention a place called Beth Dagon. Now, that would have been a temple, uh, sorry, a town with a temple in which Dagon was worshipped. And clearly, if you think back to your knowledge of Joshua, what was one of Joshua's biggest tasks? It was to go in and take the land for God. And God told him, listen, you're going to meet opposition and you're going to have all these different pockets of resistance, but you're going to have to take them out. And he starts with um, Jericho and then he moves on to Ai and then he moves on to all these different towns. and He starts taking this uh, territory for the Lord. And so the picture we first have of any mention of Dagon is that it was a town in which Dagon, this uh, Canaanite god or Philistine god, was worshipped that would have been an ungodly god that was a centre or a stronghold in a place in Israel somewhere. And Joshua would have been tasked with trying to take that city on. Now, it seems to me I'm not sure that Joshua was was successful in that. That might have been one of those towns that he didn't conquer. But that was that's the first mention of Dagon. Second mention of Dagon, which links very nicely back to the very first in the deeper sessions where Mark explored some of Samson's difficulties. This links in really, really well. It says this in Judges 16.23. Now the lords of the Philistines, in other words, the same lord over, the same lord as Goliath might have worshipped. The lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god. And to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into, significant language, into our hand. Okay, so control, spiritual control, spiritual headship for the Philistines is this God Dagon. They are rejoicing because they have Samson, who should have been fully submitted to the Lord. But we know he probably wasn't all the time. And he compromised with the Philistines. And so there's this celebration. And we remember this celebration because... 
Samson's involved in that. He's brought out and paraded in front of all the Philistines in their temple, possibly even in Beth Dagon. Or I think it might have been Gaza. Not sure. Not completely sure about where it was. Um, I want you to notice that this head and hand imagery even goes back to that time with Samson. Don't forget, godly strength is in the hair of Samson's head. That's a representation in scripture of what's going on. Well, what I'm trying to say is that the, the, he, the strength in the hair of, of Samson was the root from which we get this whole head-hands standoff in 1 Samuel 17. It starts there, way back then. And what I'm trying to say to you is that the, that, that control issue has long roots that go back a long way. Do, do you get that? And, it's, yeah. and I've often wondered, why, why has God put strength in someone's hair? Well, it's to do with headship. It's to yeah. do with the, the seat of control and the emotions. And this is what it links forward through to, okay? What we also notice about Samson is that he keeps compromising with the Philistines. And what does, where does he get damage? He gets damage to his head. What happens to him? He gets blinded. So there's an attack on his person through the compromise that he, that he brings. <laughs> this, is, this is also pretty key. What does Samson actually do to attack back? He actually tackles the temple and the roof falls on all of these Philistines' heads. Okay? Are you seeing a bit of a theme and a picture here? So that's Samson and Dagon. So we've had... Dagon is um, mentioned by, in the book of Joshua... We then get in the judges, Samson and Dagon, having some kind of an interaction uh, through the, the, the worship of Dagon in the Philistine temple. Then we get to a fascinating interaction between the Ark of the Lord and Dagon. So, as I remember it, Eli had two sons, Phineas and Hopnas, I think. Hopney. Hopney. Those guys were not very godly. They decided to take the Ark of the Lord as a kind of token or a talisman into battle. Very unwise, because it was outside of relationship with God properly. And when I think you step into something where you're using God as a talisman rather than out of relationship, it's very tricky and dangerous territory. And the Philistines capture the Ark of the Lord. And then in 1 Samuel uh, 5, we get this really amazing interaction going on. So just follow with me in the text there on the middle of page 3. It says, Then the Philistines took the Ark of God... And brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the, gro on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And notice again, the head of Dagon... And both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumours, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand, God's hand, is hard against us and against Dagon our God question for you again do you notice any similarities between Goliath and his god Dagon what's the most obvious similarity between them had the head cut off yeah what's more of a similarity 
Keep going with that. Fell face down. Yeah, he did. So in the interaction between David and and Goliath, the ungodly one, or the one who belongs to a different spiritual realm, has to effectively almost bow down, face flat, in front of the godly one. Do you see that? And this is prefigured in 1 Samuel 5, before we even get to 1 Samuel 17. So what I'm saying to you is often there is a spiritual battle where things happen and then it's outworked in the material or the physical. Do you see that? Do you see the parallel of that? What are the implications? I don't know the answer to this. What are the implications of that? I'll throw it over to you. What do you think the implications are? Something being worked out in the spiritual, something being worked out later on in the physical. What do you think that might mean for church, for prayer, for worship? Tell me some things. Get your thinking going. What, what do you think? Come on, Alan. You've had a thought and you're smiling. Tell us. I just think if we're not in God's will. Yeah. And we're not um, acting as David was, as the hand of God, then, you know, the spiritual won't be worked out in the physical as well. We need to make sure we're in God's will. Absolutely. If we're not in God's will, we mustn't be surprised if, this, if the, those physical things that we're hoping to see happen may not happen or they may go wrong yeah anything else any other implications from okay can you there's a pattern here something's been fought out in the spiritual and then you it appears in the natural uh, the well get yeah, go on tells us to speak out the truth yes and if you speak it out believe and it will come to pass yes okay yes yeah, so there's a spiritual reality envisaged in this scene in 1 Samuel 5 which is then later worked out and comes true in a battle later on, which is won in God's favour. So what you're saying is if we speak out godly truth here, later down the line when there's a battle that goes on, it's, it's kind of going to be won because we've already spoken out in advance. So we've seen it in the spiritual first. Yeah, absolutely, that's great. Yeah, Gaudi, were you going to say something? I'll come to you in a sec, sorry. Hold on a sec. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, sometimes things, are, like a prayer is already answered in the spiritual realm. It's just a battle. Mm-hmm. A matter of time. Of it outworking itself in the yeah, physical, the yes. Physical, but we may not see it happening already. Okay. Like the healing come to pass or the victory come to pass. Sure. So sort of, um, it's just a matter of time before it actually happens in the physical. And during that time, can things also can go wrong because we haven't seen it in the physical, so we can actually go outside the will of God thinking like... Yeah, there's a danger. That there's both a comfort and a danger. There's a yes. comfort in, in... If it's happened in the spiritual, we should take comfort and be faithful that it's going to outwork itself in the long run. Yes. The danger on the other side of that is that if we're impatient or slip into temptation or don't stay in God's will, we might drift off of it so much that it doesn't happen and it has to be revisited in the spiritual. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think um, you should also be guided by the spiritual because more often than, you know, not, usually the opposition looks really bigger yeah. than you, mm-hmm. the physical. You know, looking at these instances, it was Samson against the Philistines. There were so many of them. Yeah. It was David against Goliath. It was so many of them. So if we were to bring our battles to the physical realm, we would not win because that's more like the realm of the devil himself. Okay. If that makes any sense. So our, our battles are fought. Right. You know, in this so, yeah, so the implication has, has got to be that we need to do our best to hear what God is saying about the spiritual reality of something and not pay attention 
to the physical reality too much. And in fact, that's borne out by how Samuel goes and takes, um, uh, you know, goes along to Jesse's sons, doesn't he? And, and his first reaction to Eliab is, oh, this must be him. Look at him. He's great. And God says, no, I want you, I'm not somebody that looks at the outward appearance. What do I look at? I look at the inner state, the heart of what's going on. And so there's a thread of that in there as well. Yeah, Alan again. Right. And, and Christ brought himself lower than everyone okay. else. Okay. And yet he won the victory for us spiritually. So Great. The battle is already won for us. Absolutely. So, brilliant. Absolutely. So, if, what, would, what, would we, what would we say to ourselves if we saw 1 Samuel 5 as the cross and resurrection scene? What does that then say to us in our lives when we're facing a Goliath? Well, it's sorted. Let God be in charge. Yeah. Can I just say that, though, that the spiritual victory has to be played out in the physical victory? I'm going to build on what Demi said, in that I don't think we can have a dualism whereby we say the physical's the devil and we win the spirit. But actually, I think that the order is we win in the spirit first, and that plays itself out in, in, in the, the physical. physical. Yeah. There's actually a connection between that. You can't dismiss the fact that yeah. David, having confronted in his heart and made the Lord his head before the physical battle, still had to go through the physical battle, knowing that he'd won the physical battery, uh, the spiritual, spiritual battle. battle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the thing, one of the principles is, let's win it in the spirit, and then have the but then also have the confidence to play it, to, out, to play it out on the physical. Yes, that, that's a, a better way of seeing it. Yeah. I'm thinking that, uh, you know, we're talking about raising money in the church. Let's deal with the spirit of man in our own hearts or around the church. Yeah. But then let's then have the confidence to walk that out yeah. and, and actually raise money. Great, yeah. Uh, oh, that would be it. To follow in on the back of that, I find this story tremendously convicting um, in the sense that universally speaking in the church, we, we mustn't think that just because we are part of church and we profess Christ to be Lord, that we are always 100% aligning ourselves under the headship and lordship of God by default. We it, it, To me, it's tremendously um, convicting to ensure that our prioritization is right. Yeah. Um, because actually, if as, a, as, a, as an establishment, as an organization, as, as, a, as a global church, yeah. if we get the headship part wrong and we place other yeah. kind of human constructs that we've applied to yeah. religion mm-hmm. and faith and God ahead of the leading of God himself, yeah. actually this word shows us that anything that is Placed ahead of God will crumble and fall. Well, and actually, the yeah. roots of this story are exactly that with mm-hmm. Eli and his sons, because that's exactly what they are guilty of. They don't, they don't keep God first, actually, do they? Yeah. And that's where this story starts, and, and this is where, it, where it's got its roots. It's lordship, isn't it? uh, yeah, we had. Did you raise your hand? Sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a natural as well, there's a natural as well because I remember calling a prayer line a few years ago, and she spoke to me about the natural. Realm, mm-hmm. and it depends on if what type of music you listen to as well. Yeah, I think I think you you have to pay attention to the natural realm, and the natural realm can come up against you, and yeah. and you know, you know so it's not 
It's not a case of, yeah, we win it in the spiritual. Yeah, we, we would want to win it in the spiritual, then the physical will follow. But if we don't pay attention to the spiritual, I think we'll then be led into a physicality. Yeah. And I think we're then subject to that. And, and that will, will uh, uh, you know, destabilise us. Debbie, what do you think? Yes, it was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but on God, yes, he was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally, and it and it's very, very apparent in one Samuel seventeen that you know his his understanding is who is this complete Philistine from which we get Philistine actually, you know that when we say this this person's a total Philistine, it kind of comes from their behaviour towards Israel in that period. Um, who is this person who dares to oppose the armies of the living God? His perspective is utterly different to both the Israelite army and his brothers and his dad and Saul and everybody else. And so his head, his head is in a different place, and it's very much with God at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, yeah. Um, Pastor Mark was just saying about dualism. I've heard about dualism, but I don't really understand what it means. Okay. You can, <laughs> you, can, you can ask me to come up and have a word with you afterwards sure. about it. If that would be I think I'll have a go. I might need to defer to Mark and get him some help. Okay. But I think dualism is the idea that there are sort of, is a kind of parallel track to reality where spiritual things are pretty much truncated off fully from physical things. And I'm not sure the Bible reflects that. That was, I think, a feature of Greek thinking, was that you had these two worlds and they didn't really have any bearing on each other. Whereas what the Bible teaches is that the spirit is very much, got a very strong influence on how the physical outplays itself. Is that roughly right, Mark? Yeah, roots and shoots. What the spiritual root is can cause a physical fruit. So, you you, you notice some people... They, they have problems in relationships because they've got a spiritual problem. And it doesn't matter how many relationships they have, the relationships are not the issue, it's the spiritual issue. It, you know, somebody who uh, has a problem with authority spiritually, doesn't matter how many jobs they get, they're always going to be unhappy at work because they've got that issue that needs to be dealt with. Uh, you know, or, I mean, you could... Uh, lots of issues, you know, if yeah. somebody has a spiritual issue or an emotional issue, that needs to be dealt with, and then the physical will follow. But you do have to follow it through into the physical and be disciplined. And I think the dualism would try and would would be a faulty way of seeing things because the dualism would say, well, no, that those aren't related. But actually, the Bible teaches that they are. I think, yeah, in in essence, yeah. Um, well, just a quick one to buttress what Pastor Mark has said in the sense that we can't delineate Looking at David, he's been prepared for all of this years back. There's a spiritual perspective, but being spiritual doesn't also mean that we do not hone our skills in the physical. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. David had, I mean, if he didn't know how to use the sling to start with. Yeah. Oh, definitely. That yeah. Well, that would have let him down, wouldn't it? Yeah. He'd killed the lion, he'd killed the bear mm-hmm. in the woods while everybody else was probably doing all you know, enjoying and doing, yeah. having mm-hmm. fun. So in, in the end, we realized that God, he dealt with the spiritual, but then he wasn't um, a mediocre when it came to physical things. 
He had something in his hands. He had a great deal of competency. Exactly. Yeah, he did. Such yeah. That God could. So what God just basically did was accentuate what he he could do and then made it big. Yeah. Such that you have these skills, but then when grace comes in contact with that, yeah. it makes the impact, you know. That's a great, great point. And I think a lot of Christians need to hear that, which is that don't be so spiritual that you're no use in the physical or in the practical. I actually think it's great if you're a Christian that's brilliantly spiritual and very close to the Lord and you've got your head with God all the time, but that he's guiding you to be highly competent and highly skillful where you are. You know, another person who was very good like that in the Bible was Daniel. You know, Daniel was an incredibly prayerful guy and was able to hear uh, stunningly accurate prophecies that have that caused scholars arguments to this day because they don't believe he could have written them at the time he wrote, he wrote them, and yet they were accurate, uh, and yet at the same time was ten times more competent than any of his colleagues and any of the contemporary people in Babylon at the time. So, you know, if you look at the, the example of Daniel, you look at the example of David, be very, very spiritual and close to the Lord and writing psalms and totally with him, but be immensely skillful and fantastically great shot with a sling and inc- incredible worry and all the rest of it. Do both, why not? That seems to be the teaching, I would say. Yeah, Kevin. So just, I realise a tangent, but just to no, 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 very sorry. quickly on that. I think Psalm 1 is a perfect illustration of that. Because it talks about those who delight in the law of the Lord are like trees planted next to streams of running water, and uh, of living water. And that, that's an illustration of somebody who delights and lives in deep personal, spiritual relationship with God. But the very next thing the Word says is that they bear their fruit in season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think almost spiritual disciplines are... You know they are important, but if they don't bear fruit, they're 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 uh, it, it, almost impotent. You know, yeah. they, they, mm-hmm. like we, if it doesn't bear fruit, it's it's uh, probably not as deep as we think it is. I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. Very wise. Yeah. 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 Very true. Yeah. Sharon. Yeah, just a very quick one. I just noticed Yeah, great point. Yeah. Where it has yeah. told to be gone. So yeah. So the people of Ashdod actually bringing Dagon twice to the Lord. Yes. You're saying actually that's like a picture of us needing to keep on bringing yeah. as unco- in, in a kind of you know like a it is a picture of us bringing things repeatedly to God mm-hmm. and Him breaking them down. I mean that's very true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I don't think that the people of Ashdod intended that, but that is a layer of meaning that is undeniably there. And for all of us, we need to keep bringing those things that we have had raised up against God repeatedly to him and allow God to knock them over. Absolutely right. Yeah. Cut it down and allow it to be broken. Yes, absolutely. Very, very good. Yeah. Yeah, it's control system and it's, it's capacities. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Very, very good. Yeah, really, really good. Okay, so in that blank space where it says, are there any similarities between Goliath and his god Dagon? Uh, You might want to put something like, um, 
Uh, David, who belonged to the Lord, made Goliath fall. And the ark of the Lord made Dagon fall. Okay? David, who, who was the Lord's, made Goliath fall. And the ark of the Lord made Dagon fall. And there's a, that is the parallel. And we've, we've talked about that being worked out. Okay, we qu- haven't quite finished with Dagon yet. The last aspect of Dagon. This little verse reference in 1 Chronicles 10.10. Saul and his sons die in battle against the Philistines. And they take his armour into the temple of their gods. And what do they do with Saul's head? Back to that head thing again. They go and fasten his head in the temple of Dagon. Really fascinating. And I would go out on a limb and I would say, worshipping Dagon will literally do your head in. Now that's kind of funny, but it's also, there's a chilling side to that. Let me just gather that evidence and place it before you again. It damages Samson's head, blindness. It damages all the Philistines in the temple in the head, as well as Samson, so much that they will die. Dagon's own statue's head and hands break off. What does that tell you about who Dagon might be? His own image or effigy is not preserved from its own destructive power. How about that? Goliath dies from a head injury. Saul's head ends up in the Philistine temple to Dagon. I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination to suggest that if you worshipped, or you could worship the the god Dagon today, and fortunately you cannot, but if you were in that culture and you did, head injuries, losing your head... All those kinds of things would be regular occurrences. And I know that sounds really macabre and chilling, but that's what I think you get into. And I think it's a very sobering reminder. If you worship the wrong stuff, it is dangerous, people. It's really dangerous. Yes, Ruth? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Also, in, in uh, Genesis, um, the Lord speaks prophetically over the enemy and says that, that the man will crush your head. Very, very good. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, so very good. It, that was almost prophetic <laughs> about de- the That's hands excellent. of God being used by man. Yeah. Or man being used by God as his hands to crush yeah. the head of the enemy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah? You, did you want to say something? You had your hand up, I think. You could... Me? Yeah. No, no. I no, was no. sucking my <laughs> <laughs> Pondering. But I think, I think the point is, yeah. if you give yourself to the wrong it's not going to be you good will, for you. Yeah. You will be in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, George. Uh, our salvation also is linked to the head. Because the Bible says that uh, for a helmet, the hope of uh, salvation. Yeah. And also that uh, when, uh, in terms of uh, talking about uh, casting out imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against knowledge of God. Yes. That our mind, which mm-hmm. is you know, linked to our head, also yeah. is important. Every high thing must come down. Absolutely. Yeah, very good, George. Yeah, Femi. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. Could well be. Yeah. I think that the Ark of God represents, at that time, that was God's representation. And the Dagon was the enemy's representation. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that proves prophetically that by Dagon falling, yeah. smashing to pieces, yeah. there's no other God 
There isn't, no, absolutely right, yeah. There's no question about who's, who's in charge, yeah. And, and hence, the, hence the, you know, the title of the notes is like heads and hands, who, you know, who's, in, who's the head, who's really the head, it's, it's God, it's absolutely God. And so uh, Mark kind of stole my joke a little bit, but I'll tell you. So something not to ask a Philistine is, how's your day gone? Okay. <laughs> okay. That's okay. It's fine. Well, I got it off you anyway. You, you said it once in the corridor. It made me laugh. So, so. Okay. Let's jump forward a little bit with all of that as a context and link this to Jesus. I think it's really important to link all of our teaching at some point or another to the person of Jesus. So... Let's have a quick look at how hands get used in Matthew's Gospel. This came out of some personal devotional time, just looking at the way hands get get used in in Matthew's Gospel. And I just wanted to do a kind of compare-contrast exercise between Jesus' hands being an instrument of godly kindness versus quite a few references to sinners' hands being an instrument of wrongdoing. It's just an interesting parallel for you to consider. What sometimes writers will do, or artists, or people in, working in the arts, is they'll take a thing, and they'll work that thing through as a symbol, or a representation of a much bigger picture. And I don't think that's untrue of the Bible. I think the way that the, the, the Holy Spirit guided the writer of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, he did that, that literary device. I'm absolutely sure of it. And I think Matthew does it to some extent as well in, in his gospel. Let's just have a very quick look at that. Let's look at Jesus' example uh, of where he, his hands are subject to his godly mind, okay? Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I I, I will, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, Matthew 8, 3. Um, It says, uh, then it goes, my daughter has died, but come, this is Jairus, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Uh, And then Jesus says to the man with the withered hand in the temple, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out and it was restored and healthy like the other one. Uh, in the walking on the water episode, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Peter, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Many children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And there are other examples in the book of Matthew where you can see where Jesus' intention, spiritually, works itself out in the usage of his hands in a godly way. Let's look at the contrasting side of that. It's not all good and bad. You know, there's some neutral comments about hands. I'm, you know, I'm making a case here. But it, there are some, quite a few instances where it's clear that hands are representations of the sinfulness of people. And in fact, the opening one, the opening example I've got there is, is Jesus' is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands referring to those people who want to to take him out, the religious authorities. Um, Very tellingly, at the Last Supper, he says, he he was asked about who was going to betray him, and he answered, the one who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me, Judas. And then in the garden, they come up and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And this is one of the most telling ones of all. And so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to yourselves. So Matthew, I think, quite definitely has a a thing going on with hands, as used by Jesus, a godly, of course, and they they deliver kindness and, and healing and restoration. But sometimes when people use their hands, it's very clear that those hands don't have that godly intention behind them. And that's like a link through from 
the, the head and the hands theme that we've seen in the book of Samuel there. So let's take a moment just to respond to the Holy Spirit. And, and do you want to come and play for us a bit? That would be great. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And wasn't there some, there was a story, wasn't it, where the sons of thunder, James and John, yeah. get their mum to go and say to Jesus, oh, can we be at the left, the, you know, at Jesus' right hand and left hand in, in, <laughs> in, in your kingdom? And Jesus kind of says, no, you know, that's not for mine to grant. And it's also revealing that that, in, that intention to have a, a position around hands reveals an envy in their hearts or reveals a, an ungodliness deep inside them. Very interesting. So here's a little bit of things to write in your notes in that blank section there. Uh, Our heads must be, and I would say something like, fully aligned with God. And then it says, in order for our hands to be righteous, to to do right things. You might want to put that in there. So our heads need to be fully aligned with God in order for our hands to undertake righteous actions or for us to do and say right things.